Texas Monthly. During the year 2017, the private investigator Philip Klein got countless tips regarding the case of Tom Brown. We got everything from he was a clown at the circus or he was a, a, a circus trainer or whatever he was with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey all the way to he was a wrestler out in North Carolina to he was in Los Angeles, California, uh, living on the streets all the way to the absurd, which was uh, there was a motorcycle gang uh, that had kidnapped him on the side of the road after he pumped gas at Fonks. But in September, Klein said, 11 months after Tom disappeared, he was sitting in his office when a call came through. And it was a young uh, female uh, from the Canadian area. And she gave us information that only investigators knew. So we knew at that point, okay, now this person is for real. And she told us something else that really kind of set us back a little bit. She goes, I can't carry this in my conscience for the rest of my life. And did she seem nervous? Um, at first, but I put her at ease. I talked to her a little bit. Uh, I had heard of her before. And she said she had overheard someone who she knew. Was it a relative? I'm not going to go into that, only to say... She said that she had overheard a conversation that she probably shouldn't have overheard. That's how she presented it to us. I said, well, what would that be? I mean, it could be anything from Tom's diabetic to Tom's dead. I mean, it could be anything. And so the way I looked at it was, well, what was the conversation? And then she started talking. I didn't ask her any questions. I just let her talk. And I had a notepad out. And I remember on the notepad writing, OMG, OMG. And one of the things she said to you was that she had overheard where Tom's body was? She had overheard that his body was placed, didn't know the exact location, but she had overheard that his body was placed on Lake Marvin Road. Lake Marvin Road. That's the same farm-to-market road where Tom's backpack had been found. According to the young woman, Tom's body was somewhere along that same road. It seemed that Philip Klein had finally gotten the break he had been looking for. He was on the verge of finding Tom Brown's body. From Texas Monthly, I'm Skip Hollinsworth, and this is Tom Brown's Body, Episode 5, Unusual Suspects. After getting off the phone with the young woman, Klein brought his staff together for a meeting. Actually, that was a turning point that day. That's when we all kind of looked at each other and got on the phone and Skyped and talked to each other and said, okay, look, we're, we're dealing in a homicide investigation. Klein ordered his staffers to broadcast what he described as an all-call on his firm's Facebook page, soliciting volunteers to participate in a massive search. The response was overwhelming. More than 500 applications came in and 150 volunteers were chosen. Most of them came from Canadian, others from nearby Panhandle towns. A few traveled from as far away as Kansas. 
Early on the morning of October 14, 2017, the volunteers gathered near the start of Lake Marvin Road. They peered up at the six foot six inch Klein as he stood in the bed of a pickup truck. What I did was I, I, I gave everybody a small speech. I told them they were doing God's work. Uh, and uh, I did give an inspirational talk, which is, look, it's hot, it's gonna get hot out here today. If, you know, if you need water, tell us. Whatever you need, tell us, but, but this is important. Klein asked the volunteers to be on the lookout for items that Tom had carried with him the night he disappeared. An iPhone, his glasses, his keys. Because a 25 caliber shell casing had been found in Tom's Durango, Klein told them to also be on the alert for a small caliber handgun. Lastly, he assumed that wild hogs or other animals had already gotten to Tom's body. So he directed the volunteers to look for human bones. Then Klein introduced the crowd to Tom's mom, Penny. She stood beside the pickup and she read a passage from the book of Genesis. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Several of the volunteers, including some who had never met Tom, wiped tears from their eyes. Klein then said a prayer. I did ask for peace and strength for each of the volunteers, for their safety, and also that we can find items that would push this investigation along to bring Tom home. The volunteers were divided into groups of 10. Each group was given roughly a mile of the road to search. Five volunteers on one side, five on the other. They got on their hands and knees to dig through the brush. They peered beneath fallen tree branches, raked through piles of dead leaves, climbed in and out of drainage ditches. Klein, of course, made sure the Panhandle news media was there to chronicle the event. It's been almost a year since Canadian teen Thomas Brown went missing. Today, hundreds stepped together to get answers. Only six minutes into the search, a woman who was near the start of the road started yelling. She'd come across something in the grass. It was an iPhone, she said. Klein hurried over. I get there, I look at it and go, holy crap. We're all looking at it, everybody's snapping pictures. We're like, holy God, oh Jesus. The phone had a champagne tint, which happened to be the same color as Tom's iPhone. But Klein said he didn't actually think the phone was Tom's because it was in perfect condition. Pristine. It hadn't been damaged by the, by the mowers. It hasn't been, it's, it's like out of the box. I took one look at it and went, uh, that's not Tom's because that's fresh. Somebody just threw that out or maybe somebody dropped it. One of the searchers dropped it out of their backpack or something. That's, that's a fresh phone. Although that side of the road had recently been mowed, the phone had no cracks or scratches. There had been heavy rains in recent weeks, but the phone didn't have any signs of water damage. In other words, there was no way the phone could have been out in that grass for more than a day or two. The phone would later be sent to an FBI forensics lab for analysis. Meanwhile, the volunteers continued searching. They collected a few shreds of deteriorated clothing and a shoe. Someone found an empty black pistol case that could have held a 25 caliber handgun, but there was no sign of Tom's body. If Klein was disappointed, he didn't show it when he talked that afternoon to Laurie Brown, the editor of the Canadian Record. By the way, the panning sound you'll hear in the background is coming from Chance. 
the famous cadaver dog that Klein had brought in from Georgia to sniff around. Successful day? Yeah, I'd say it was a real successful day. I think we, uh, I think we were able to uh, take uh, some things off the board and we definitely added some stuff onto the board. So my, uh, my thought process is I'm very happy with the day. Uh, of course, you know, we're all looking for conclusionary <clears throat> conclusionary uh, endings. That doesn't even make sense. We're, we're looking for conclusionary findings for the Brown case, but, um, you know, we're just not there yet. But we are getting closer. For the first time, I feel very comfortable in saying that we took about five big steps forward. I told them on the way in, I was very proud of everybody, how everybody stuck to their guns and really worked hard. I mean, you saw us out there. We were out there in the trenches kicking snakes. Tough. and Yeah, I mean, it was tough. And it was uh, people passing out because of the heat. And, you know, that, that talks about the grit of the people up here in North Texas, and especially in Canadian. And I was very impressed. Equally, we had law enforcement from Kansas, from Oklahoma, uh, from New Mexico. Now, did you recruit them? Or no, they, they just, just volunteered. They volunteered. Just drove down there on their That's own impressive. dime. and It's so impressive, it really is. And, and it also shows the nationality of this case. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm not saying it's the biggest thing in the world, because it's not. Although um, it is here. Uh, although in Canadian it is. That was going to be my next statement. And it cuts to the heart. It, it cuts will cut to the, to the heart. It's a boy. Yeah, it's, it's just a kid. The kid didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't into any nefarious activity. The kid, you know, was he a little kooky? Yeah. Well, aren't we all a little kooky? Yeah. We're all a little kooky. I mean, you know, come live my life for a week. You'll jump out of there and go, oh, my God. Um, but, but he was a good boy. He had a good heart. Had a good set of parents. His father is devastated by this. Devastated. He can't even come down here. That's how devastated the man is, and I don't blame him. His mother, she walks around in a state of shock. His stepfather walks around in a state of shock. I was with him this afternoon, talking to him and briefing him on what we found and what was going on and the direction we felt this thing was going next. Devastated. They're just devastated. Mm -hmm. So you'll be back? Yes, ma'am. We don't disclose our travel, you know that. Yeah. We come in, we come in quiet. Sure. Although now, you know, like I told you a little everybody while. Everybody knows what to look everybody for. Knows, everybody knows who we are. I mean, everybody, I mean, I walk into a, a restaurant. I was in the cattle company the other day, and I sat down just to have a quick hamburger, a hamburger and a Coke. And I sat down, I ate my hamburger and a Coke, and told the lady, hey, i got to go, where's my bill? And she said, your bill's paid. I'm like, oh, come on. You know, you guys don't have to do that. And she goes, we didn't do it. That, that a couple said over there that recognized you from television uh, paid your bill. It's that sort of thing that, I, can, I, I mean, I, I don't have that in these cases that I do around the world. But in Canadian Texas, I do. It's the community is in, engaged. The community is, 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 is prayerful. Yeah, these are good people. These are great people, but we've just got to make this happen. And all the funny stuff's got to end. It's just got to stop. And many of them have a serious situation on their hands, and people need to surround that family. And all the politics and all the, the craziness of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that crap, that's got to end. It's got to stop. Everybody put down their shields, and let's get to work. Nobody cares who solves this case. Let's just get it solved. Let's bring Tom home. Let's put him in the ground and then let's prosecute the people 
that we have to prosecute. Later that fall, Klein did return to Canadian, and he made yet another appearance on Chris Sample's radio show. Is there anything else new in the investigation? Have there been any other new pieces of evidence that have been factors? Klein told listeners about another tantalizing tip he had received, this one involving a brown or copper-colored pickup. It was seen in the downtown area during the time of the disappearance. The truck was seen turning on Lake Marvin Road. The truck had been seen earlier in the evening up by the football field. So we're looking for the Ford F-250. It's either a copper or a brown-colored truck, and we need to talk to that occupant. We believe they live in the area of Canadian, and we believe even more they live in the county or maybe an adjacent county. So that's what we're asking the public to do, and uh, it is a very important, as I tell you all the time, piece of the puzzle. On another trip to Canadian, Klein performed a luminol test on the interior of Tom's Durango, which was back in Penny's garage. Luminol is a chemical that detects trace amounts of blood, and the sheriff's department had not performed the test. So I bring my luminol box out there, big old investigator's case. We luminol the car. We light it up like a Christmas tree. There's blood everywhere. Klein saw the blood in the Durango as further evidence that Tom was the victim of foul play. Meanwhile, over at the Sheriff's Department, Sheriff Nathan Lewis was also getting inundated with tips. One man called to say he'd heard that Tom had been killed and fed to pigs. A prisoner at the county jail arranged a meeting with Lewis. He let him know that a gay meth dealer had stuffed the senior class president into a wood chipper after having sex with him. The rumors about Tom just seemed to multiply, becoming more and more sensational by the day. Okay. I'll put Thank you down for $5. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> it's for my little girl. Uh-huh. Y'all have a good day. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? During one of my trips to Canadian, I paid a visit to Katrina Adcock, the owner of Trina's Treasures, a second-hand resale shop on Main Street. Show me around. Okay. <laughs> so this is a gift shop, a kind of antique shop. Yes, this is a, you can find it all here store. So what is your most popular part of the store? Mm, probably my front room because it's got all the cool stuff. Um, and so, and this is my guy. Mannequin. He's a guy with boobs. He's clearly a guy, but they, they forgot part of his anatomy was well, wrong. That's true. It He's happens. just as confused as the rest of the world. So this is this is men's clothing. This is the men's and the boys. I've just kind of combined them together. By the way, you've lived in Canadian for how long? My whole life. And you're how old? I'm 40. I was born in this hospital before they quit having babies in 79. Katrina seems to know something about everyone in town. In November 2016, Tom Brown disappears. What are you and your friends thinking? Okay, so me and my husband were at home and we seen it on the TV and I was like, they're not gonna find him alive. They're just not gonna find him alive. There's not very many incidences that happen in Canadian Texas. Where did people say Tom was? 
everybody thought that he was in a drainage ditch or in a... In a drainage ditch, dead? Yeah. And where else did people say he was? Um, in, in a well. There's this one girl that said that she, every time she went by this one well, that she just instantly would think of Tom, you know. I know this is the weirdest story, but there's a teepee over there that apparently the rumor is they used to drink and have sex in the teepee. I don't know. There's a hundred million thousand stories that have went around about what could have happened. But these people, they live here every day. They're real people. You know, they hurt, they love, they laugh, they cry, they do all these things. When she had run out of her own stories, Katrina passed on the name and phone number of a friend who knew the details of other stories. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you this lady's number and she'll tell you exactly where this girl said. Because I don't want to misconstrue it. Okay. As the rumors grew about Tom's fate, it seemed no one was above suspicion, no matter who they were. Tom's friends Christian Webb and Caleb King continued to get caught up in the web of allegations. Here's Christian's mom, Anita. Uh, a lot of the people in this town were not nice to her, uh, were not nice to us. So it was, it was a difficult time for her, it still is. And she and I had walked into a flower shop in Canadian and one of her ex-teachers was in there that she had in high school, teacher that she always got along great with. And that teacher basically snubbed her, didn't talk to her, didn't acknowledge her, kind of turned her back and never gave her the time of day. But never, I mean, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking. We walked out of that flower shop and she had tears in her eyes. I mean. Was Christian talked about as knowing more than what she was letting on to be? Oh, absolutely. Um, she had went, when she went back to OSU, um, my youngest son had went over to visit her one weekend and he had a good friend that went to school there also that um, he was from Canadian. And so Christian and Elliot went over to his apartment one afternoon and he was having a party with a few friends and they walked in. And the first thing this kid said to Christian was, where's Tom? You know where he's at. I mean, and it just, it, it took her back. I, it's hard to even explain how many people believe that she had something to do with it in this town. Caleb King was so troubled by the constant online accusations that he stayed off of social media entirely. Here he is talking to Laurie Brown. I mean, how do you think this has changed you, Caleb? Uh, I think I don't like people as much as I used to. It was just interesting how quickly you could see a town turn on somebody that they don't know and how they, the, just the nasty crap that they would spout. And it just kind of made me think, well, you know, we like to advertise ourselves as this clean country. We're all friendly folks here in town, and that's just BS. At one point, Canadian's gossip circuit even implicated Christians and Caleb's parents. You know, 
Caleb's dad is a state representative. My husband's family has been here forever. They ranch. People think that we just have tons of money. They can believe what they want. But they see those two families as wealthy families. So immediately it went to, well, they have money, so they're covering up for their kids. It seemed like every time I called Katrina of Trina's Treasures, she'd gotten wind of a new rumor. Hello? Hi, is this Trina? Yes. It's Skip Hollinsworth, the reporter. Hi, Skip. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I've been I've been dying to talk to you, actually. What's going on? Well, I mean, tons. Which part do you want to know? <laughs> During this call, she told me her latest theory, that a group of boys was initially holding Tom captive, and at some point they accidentally killed him. And then they tried to figure out what to do with the body. But I think they moved it three times, and they froze it once. They what? I think they froze it once, and they moved it three times. How do you freeze bodies? In a freezer. Same way you do any kind of meat. And why would they be doing all this? To try to figure out what they're doing next. Katrina also let me know that she had heard a new version of the woodchipper story. But this one was about Sheriff Lewis. So, a friend of mine popped in, and he said that a guy had showed up at his house, and his phone got left there. And so, he looked on his phone and seen messages from Nathan Lewis. It said Nathan Lewis on the phone. And the statements at the very end of this conversation were, we f***ed him in the ass and threw him in a wood chipper. And the next comment coming from Nathan's phone was, LOL, I know. No one in Canadian was talked about more than the sheriff. I called Lewis to ask about all the stories circulating about him. So you had one rumor that said you were having a gay relationship with Tom. Then there would be another rumor which said... You were so resentful of Tom's mother that you decided to kill Tom. Oh, so crazy. That's so crazy. Have you ever heard a rumor that you were part of a sex trafficking ring that kidnapped boys? I've heard everything, Skip. If it's if you can think of it, that nasty, awful crap, then it's been said. Did you ever hear a rumor that you had a homosexual hot tub ring? More than likely, yes. I, I, I don't personally look at these things, but I've got friends that tell me. And do you want to laugh, or do you want to, like, slam your hand into the wall? I have never felt so horrible in my life having people on social media that have no clue what's going on with this case. These people have no idea what's going on. All they're hearing is a one-sided story and they're making their judgment calls. They are, are judging me, and they don't even know why. Um, I, I'm having people out there saying all kinds of hateful things against me, accusing me of this and that. Yeah, I, I got tired of it. I, I was completely fed up with it. You know, these people dragging my family through this stuff. I've got kids. I've got a wife. If anything, 
The slander and finger-pointing and disinformation only hindered the actual search for Tom. Indeed, as 2017 gave way to 2018, the investigations by both Philip Klein and Nathan Lewis seemed to have permanently stalled. And then, on January 12, 2018, some news arrived from the FBI. And it had to do with the iPhone that Klein's volunteer had found during that search back in October of Lake Marvin Road. Because of a backlog of cases, FBI lab technicians had delayed their analysis of the phone. It had sat on a shelf for weeks. Finally, the lab techs had opened it up. The phone, they said, belonged to Tom Brown. Of all the bizarre twists in this case, the revelation about Tom's phone was possibly the most confounding. I was shocked, absolutely shocked. But the whole, the whole team was totally shocked. Because the phone was found in such pristine condition, it was obvious it had been planted only a few days, maybe only a few hours, before Klein's search had begun. It was also likely that whoever had put the phone there wanted it to be found. But why? If that person was involved in Tom's disappearance or death, why hadn't he or she just gotten rid of the phone? Maybe thrown it into the Canadian River? Yes, we felt it was a diversion technique, an amateuristic diversion technique, may I say, uh, by somebody. They were trying to divert us away from where we were searching. Klein's theory was that Tom's killer had taken Tom's phone and kept it hidden away. When the killer then heard about Klein's search in October 2017, he decided to plant the phone in the grass, hoping that once it was found, Klein would order his volunteers to focus the search in that area, and not all the way down the road, where they might find more damning evidence, like Tom's body. Once we didn't back down and we continued our search again and again and again and again out there, I think they, that the person responsible for this crime became nervous and said, oh shit, they're not going to give up on this out there. So that's my theory. But why wouldn't he have now, just... Let me say this. Paranoia. Paranoia. Somebody that does something wrong, especially somebody in their younger years, paranoia sets in. I mean, who's dumb enough to throw a phone out on a road uh, and, and expect us to, to just, oh, well, there's the phone. Well, you know, it's, it's just amateur hour. So someone had planted Tom's phone. That alone was a stunning hypothesis. But Klein wasn't finished. He reminded me that he'd withheld the exact location of the search until right before it began. He said he didn't want rubberneckers coming out to the road and perhaps coming across potential evidence. He even made sure the volunteers themselves hadn't been told where they would be searching until that very morning. So the only people that knew about the actual how it was going to happen was 48 hours before, and that was law enforcement. And did they know, because Lewis says he had no idea where you were going to go, did they know exactly where you were going to be searching? That's untruthful. He knew the whole time. Klein's implication was clear. Only a law enforcement insider could have known where to plant the phone. And who did Klein suspect was that law enforcement insider? His primary suspect, he told me, was Hemphill County Sheriff, Nathan Lewis. Klein said that he had not trusted Lewis from the moment he met him. 
He sensed that Lewis still resented Penny for the complaint she had filed against him after his 2015 run-in with Tom outside the movie theater. Klein was also suspicious about Lewis's early mistakes in the investigation, like sending the Durango back to Penny's house before it had been fully processed. Klein wondered, had Lewis been trying to taint a crime scene? Some people have said to us that it was inexperienced. An inexperienced sheriff, a dumb sheriff, somebody that didn't know what he was doing, somebody that loved to put on the uniform and run around and run radar. That's all he really knew, how to run radar. He didn't know how to test. He didn't know the proper rules of evidence procedure. He didn't know the Texas uh, uh, criminal code well. He didn't, he didn't know any of that. Okay. But Klein said he didn't think inexperience could explain everything. When I spoke to him in his office one day, he didn't hold back. And you got a sheriff that, quite frankly, I think he was corrupt. Okay? Just flat out corrupt. And you can use that. That's my belief. That's my feeling. That's my evidence. Klein said that whenever he came to Canadian, Lewis would go out of his way to be unhelpful, which to Klein was a clear sign he was hiding something. I mean, I, I work with law enforcement all over the United States, and law enforcement does not like private security guys. They just don't, unless you have a law enforcement background. That's natural and normal. I work with it all the time. I've been working with it for 31 years. I just roll my eyes and laugh, and then they figure out who I am and what I've done and my success rate, and they go, oh, okay, you're the real deal. Look, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? They never did that. They always were just snotty. They always were snarky. They always had, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. They always had a, uh, a way about them that they were simply telling us that we were full of crap and we didn't know what we were talking about. There was one meeting in particular at the Sheriff's Department that stuck with Klein. It occurred in April 2017. I always go back to that meeting that we had at the sheriff's department where we were all sitting around the table and we were all going over evidence and timelines and they they kind of laughed at us and said, you don't have anything, do you? And we kind of looked at them and said, yeah, we've done over, you know, at that point, 40 or 50 interviews and this is what the kids are saying and Lake Marvin is ground zero and they started laughing and they were rocking back and forth in their chairs like two-year-olds laughing and smirking at us, and especially the sheriff. Klein had brought along the cadaver dog Chance and Chance's trainer Trace Sargent to the meeting, hoping the dog could sniff Tom's backpack. And I asked the question flat out, would you mind going in the evidence room and you guys can control it. We won't touch it. Nobody will get near it. But could you put the backpack in the hallway and let Chance sniff it? Let's, let's see how Chance reacts. Klein said they were told no. Chance wasn't allowed near the backpack. After the meeting, Klein and his staffers and Chance the dog stood on the steps outside the sheriff's department. I remember this as the day is long. On the steps of the of the Hemphill County Sheriff's Department, we walked out and looked at each other and went, what was that? We, we've got a cover up here. My God, and law enforcement's involved. 
When I talked to Sheriff Lewis, he confirmed that he'd refused to cooperate with Klein. But that was because he didn't trust the private eye any more than Klein trusted him. Klein, said Lewis, was the cause of most of the rumor-mongering. You know, just telling people that we have people of interest, that we have, we've, we've narrowed it down to three people of, of, of suspects. You know, first of all, there is no suspect. We have no suspect. So how does he have a suspect when he's given all of his information to law enforcement? Who's the suspects? And, and then it would come out when he would say names, uh, we've already investigated those people. We've already interviewed those people. You know, the Texas Rangers or the FBI had already cleared those people. And he's still out there slandering these people when, when law enforcement's already cleared them. It, it was just, it was things like that. You know, he, he put things out there for people to, to latch on to. Oh, they're suspects. Uh, oh, they've got, they've narrowed it down to three. Um, or, oh, we've got good information. You know, we're, we're moving to the next county because we're hot on a trail. I mean, he'd say stuff like that, and, and it would just keep it would keep things fired up, like there's like there's truly something going on. When in reality, there was nothing going on at all. But he would always put out there that we're hot on the trail. This is we, we got it. This is a murder. Just as Klein said, he had a gut feeling that Lewis had something to do with that planted cell phone. Lewis said he had a feeling that Klein and Tom's mom Penny knew much more about that phone than they were saying. We had a set down with Penny. We had these updates every so often where we'd bring her in and, and she'd bring friends in and all that kind of stuff for moms for Tom people. And we sat down and, and we, we said, you know, hey, look, you know, that cell phone is in really good condition and that cell phone has not been out there since all this happened. There's no way, no how. And I, you know, and I, I told Penny, I said, you know, it's kind of strange that that your investigator calls this search, and lo and behold, 15 minutes after the where he starts this search, a cell phone's found in the bar ditch. I said, isn't that strange? And that's all I said. And then Klein wrote you a letter saying yeah, he's- Klein wrote this, this god-awful, stupid letter to me about, you know, accusing him of doing this and that. I called Klein and had him read me a portion of that letter. I put a paragraph in the letter, which, by the way, was copied to everybody in law enforcement that was involved in the case. Uh, I put a subheader called, Your Suggestion That We Planted Evidence. And this is what I said to him. In my 27-year career, I have never had anyone, especially a sheriff, suggest to my clients that I planted evidence. For you even to put that out there to anyone and to suggest that our hardworking team may have had an ulterior motive in organizing a search and then planning the evidence is disgusting. You, sir, owe my team an apology and you owe my clients an apology. In his letter, Klein had an intriguing question for Lewis. Ask yourself this question. How would anybody on my team get the phone? Question mark and then plan it to be found, question mark. So what was the answer? How could Klein have come into possession of Tom's phone when he wasn't even in Canadian when Tom disappeared? Well, Lewis said, that's a question I should really ask Tom's mother, Penny Meek. According to Lewis, a few weeks after Tom's disappearance, Penny had done something he found peculiar. She had texted Caleb King's mother, Robin, 
and asked if Caleb or his friends knew the four-digit password to Tom's iPhone. The, the way that that went down was Robin King called us at the office and came by and gave us a copy of her uh, screenshots, printed them out, of Penny asking her for the passcode. Robin said, I don't, I don't know the passcode. And then Penny says, hey, will you ask Caleb to try to find the passcode for me? Ask, you know, have him ask his friends. What would you need a passcode for? You don't need a passcode unless you have a phone. So why would she want to know the password? Clap contacted me and asked me if I had the four-digit four passcode to Thomas's phone. This is Penny. She told me she had received a call from Brent Clapp, Lewis's chief deputy. He wanted to know the password. And I was kind of irritated with them because I just didn't feel, I was frustrated and I just didn't feel like they were doing a lot. And so I, I said, I've already told you that I don't, I don't know passwords. I don't know any of his passwords, not to his cloud, not to iTunes. I don't know any of it. And I said, why do you need the four digit passcode to his phone? Well, we're just trying to tie up loose ends. And I thought, you just, you don't need that. And so I just said, well, I don't have it. So we, I hung up and then I thought, okay, I'm gonna make an effort to try. I mean, I don't know why we need it, but I'll make an effort to try to find some kind of password for them. So I text Caleb's mom, Robin. I said, would you ask Caleb one more time to ask his friends if they know any of his passwords or, to any, or his passcode to his phone or anything? So Caleb sends out a group text to all of his friends. Robin King wouldn't talk to me for this story, but I emailed Clapp and asked what he remembered. He wrote that he had never asked Penny for the passcode. I went back to Penny. I asked if it was possible someone else in the sheriff's department had called her about the passcode. No, she said. She was certain she had spoken to Clapp. Either Clapp or Penny, of course, could have easily confused the details of a conversation that took place nearly four years ago. But Lewis told me he was convinced Penny was not telling the truth. All right, for the hundredth time, explain the passcode question. She says... That well, she's a liar. She says that your chief deputy, Clapp, called her to ask for Tom's passcode to his cell phone. The first thing she said was that I was asking for the passcode, that I'm the one that told her to find the passcode because I needed it. Then it changed to Clapp. And then it changed to uh, the Texas Rangers. So who is it? Who, who asked for the passcode? She, she says it was me, then she says it was Chief Clapp, and then she said it was the Texas Rangers. Well, what story, what story is it? You know, I'm telling you, her stories change all the time. You know, which, which is it? Lewis speculated that Penny had contacted Caleb's mother, Robin, in hopes of getting the passcode, because she did have Tom's phone. And maybe she wanted the passcode so she could turn on his phone read his text messages, and look through his call history. But if Penny did have the phone, how did she get it? Had she seen her son that Thanksgiving Eve? Had he perhaps driven to the house to talk to her? And had she taken the phone from Tom before he disappeared? Such a scenario was plausible, but it seemed highly unlikely. Because if Penny was hiding something about Tom's disappearance, 
Why would she bring in a private investigator to look into the matter and potentially expose her? Well, Lewis had an answer for that, too. The client's not going to investigate her. She's paying him. So she, he's going to go off what she, what, he, what she tells him. I mean, when you hire a private investigator, you're hiring them for, for money. And when you hire somebody for money, they're working for you, and they're going to listen to what you say and do what you want them to do. Of course, I called Klein to let him know what Lewis had said. Gee, that's funny. Um, <laughs> that has got to be one of the most stupid and asinine comments that I've ever heard in my entire life. If you know anything about us, the first thing we tell the family is, hey guys, if you're involved, you're going to be pointed out. You know, I just think it's stupid when stupid people say things like that. This sheriff has got to be one of the worst law enforcement officers I have ever met, ever dealt with, and ever have had to deal with in my entire 31-year career. And don't forget that Penny also had called that press conference in July 2017, where she asked that the Sheriff's Department be removed from the case. She had said she wanted more experienced law enforcement officers with better resources to be brought in to find her son. And in January 2018, just after Tom's phone was identified, Penny took further action. She and other members of the Moms for Tom Facebook group posted an online petition demanding that the Texas Attorney General's office take over the investigation. The petition went online at 2.30 on a Thursday afternoon. The next day, more than 5,400 people had signed it. That's twice the population of Canadian. Shortly after Penny posted her petition, Sheriff Lewis made a surprise announcement. He said that he would be just fine with the state attorney general's office taking over. When I sat down with my chief deputy and we discussed it, we both came to the conclusion that this is going to be a good thing, so let's just do it. And so we wrote a letter to the attorney general asking them to get involved and help us take over this case and so we can get to the bottom of it because we were tired of all the he said she said bull crap and all the facebook crap and we decided it'd be a good thing to, to hand it over to them you know finally we get somebody in here that can see through the bullshit and actually investigate i said fantastic this is this is great do what y'all need to do one month later in february the Attorney General's criminal unit sent word that two of its veteran investigators, Sergeant Rachel Kading and Sergeant Chris Smith, had been assigned to the Tom Brown case. When Kading and Smith arrived in Canadian, they studied the Sheriff's Department reports. They stayed up an entire night downloading the department's digital files, including call records, photos, and videos. They re-interviewed residents all over town and it did not take them long to conclude that someone was not telling the truth. The investigators came up with a short list of people they wanted to put on the box. That's detective parlance for a lie detector test. Sheriff Lewis was on the list. So was Philip Klein. But at the top of the list was Tom's mother, Penny. The investigation into Tom's disappearance was about to take yet another turn. Next week on Tom Brown's Body. 
then she teared up and then she said, well, this is heartbreaking. And I said, yeah, I said, it is. And, um, and then they kept saying that I knew where the body was. I knew what happened, that I had moved the body. Tom Brown's Body is a Texas Monthly production. Executive producer is Megan Kreit. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the music. J.K. Nickel is our editor, and Paul Knight is our fact checker. Audio assistants are Sean Cronin and Emma Jane Hopper. Our theme music is No Hard Feelings by the Avid Brothers. I'm your writer and host, Skip Hollinsworth. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See y'all next week.